If I had to guess, I would pretty confidently guess that no one came here today expecting to hear blatant lies and contradictions. And yet, I'm about ready to preach a sermon uh, that will be filled with blatant lies and contradictions. And you say, why would he say that, even if he's going to do that? Gross injustice. A sermon filled with gross injustice. Misrepresentation. Lies. What a sermon this is going to be. Well, that's because we're going to look at the trial of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to the end of the gospel according to Luke. So we'll be in chapter 22 and chapter 23. And we will see at Jesus' trial that he is tried, he is found innocent, and he is condemned to death anyway. Gross injustice. Lies spoken about him, to him, terrible, horrific, the worst example of such things that we could ever see. And yet, without contradiction, we would say, it's grand. We just got done singing about the glory of the cross, which in one sense is a grand contradiction. How, how, on, how on earth would we say the glory of the cross? If you're only partially informed, you say that, that's, that's ludicrous. That, that's crazy. But fully informed, we say, well, that's because even though it was the most horrific thing ever in history, there's a divine plan of redemption behind it all so that Jesus would give himself... He's in charge ultimately up to be crucified so that atonement could be made for everyone who would ever trust in him. And so we, in that sense, say, oh, the glory of the cross, because it means hope for people like you and hope for, hope for people like me. And we're going to see in this historic account where even though these terrible things are happening, these gross injustices, we're going to see clearly, as clear could be, that Jesus is in charge, and all of this is a part of a divine drama that is unfolding in real time and real space for us. So, if you would, if you're not already there, Luke chapter 22, we're going to look at 22, verse 63, through 23, verse 25. So, starting in 22, uh, 63, Jesus has been betrayed already. We saw it last time. He's been arrested. He's held in Jerusalem during Passover, which is amazing and awful and horrendous. Passover, where the people of God say they're celebrating the fact that God saves and it's during the Passover that the professing people of God uh, who are celebrating God saves are going to kill the Son of God. And so it's gross, it's disgusting, it's wrong, but it's all a part of this greater plan of God for redemption. So beginning in verse 63, let's go ahead and start working our way through this so that we might see Jesus for who he really is and worship him. Verse 63, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Matthew and Mark say they're spitting on him as well. Uh, the temple guards have him from chapter 22, verse 52, and they are mocking him. They are beating him. An allusion to Isaiah 50. We'll move on in a second. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back, this prophetic statement, I gave my back to those who strike. So he's in charge. My cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And here we see this 
becoming reality. Then verse 64 says, they also blindfolded him, that is, they blindfolded Jesus and kept, kept asking him, prophesy. They're demanding that of, of him. Uh, who is it that struck you? Verse 65, and they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. They're defaming him. To blaspheme is to lie in a spiritual context. They're saying things that are mocking uh, regarding him that aren't true regarding him. And we can kind of see how the picture is unfolding. Not good. Terrible. Unsettling. In light of who he is. And yet we know it's going somewhere. And so we can bear reading it. Jesus said this would happen in Luke 18, verse 32. I'll just read it. But in 1832, it says, For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he has been, and will be mocked, and he is being, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. That's what he said just four chapters earlier in Luke 18:32. So what's right about this? Well, there's nothing right about it. But as we move through this, I want you to be, be asking that question. We're going to see all of these wrong things. Innocent declared guilty or treated as if you were guilty. And you say, what's right about this? Well, there's nothing right about this other than the fact that, as I just said a little while ago, the drama is unfolding. What's right about this is Jesus said this is going to happen and it is happening because it serves a greater purpose than mere martyrdom. Jesus has already shown himself to have a supernatural power over even the strongest forces, whether they be of nature or spiritual beings. Here Jesus is. Jesus could have done less than snap a finger. Without lifting a finger, he could have snapped all of their necks. He's already proven and shown he could do, he can do whatever he wants to do. What's right about our passage is Jesus doesn't do those things because history here is going somewhere according to plan at the hands of sinful human beings. This is the God we trust in. This is the Savior we trust in. And I don't mind saying without trying to be serendipitous and somehow uh, overly emotional I mean it for all that it's worth and genuinely Jesus is not killing all of them because they deserve to be killed and allowing this to happen to him because it's according to plan but let me also make it personal he's doing this for you you who trust in Him. He does this because He loves us. And He is going to satisfy the just requirement for our sin. Because He loves us. And there is no greater love. We, we, we have other kinds of love that we experience that are great kinds of love. There is no greater love than this. So let's acknowledge it. That He would give His life for us. How do you know God loves you? 
How do you know God loves you when you don't feel like God loves you? When everything around you circumstantially looks awful. I'm just pointing out the obvious, circumstantially, by the way. Well, because he sent his son to do this and to do more than this. And so we say, the glory of the cross. Because we're celebrating the love of God for us in his son, Jesus. Verse 66 says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. Okay, so the, the religious leaders, the, the religious suits, if you will. And they led him away to their council. And they said, 67 says, If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, the promised deliverer king, the one they said they were waiting for, the one who would be like David, sent from God, if you are the Messiah, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Why would Jesus say that? Because he, he knows that they're not actually looking for, the, for, for, that, for any kind of answer. They've already made up their minds. They're already doing this to him. He knows. He knows this isn't really a, this isn't really a just kind of thing going on here. It emphasizes the injustice of it all. But do notice that Jesus, at this point in time, by saying what he's saying, is not on the defensive. He's on the offensive. Oh, you're here to evaluate my righteousness? You're here, here to evaluate whether or not I tell the truth? No, I'm evaluating you. Who's on trial here? Verse 69 says, But from now on, the Son of Man, that is Himself, Jesus, using another title for Messiah. That is, huh, from, but from now on, the Son of Man... Again, from Daniel, it's a messianic title. It's not a humanity title, per se. The Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That is like, whoa! Shock. Profound. Who can sit at God's right hand? Well... Not a mere human being, not some kind of whacked out religious rabbi from the sticks. This is going down like this, you know, punks. <laughs> from now on, I will be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high at God's right hand. You want to know who the judge is here? That's the place of judgment. That's the place of supreme evaluation. That's that unique place, place of privilege. Uh, the, the roles are in actuality reversed here, friends. In, in Judaism, we know by now had gotten enough um, human tradition going on in addition to their scriptures to have this be radically offensive. Because now they're believing that you have to have angelic mediation, you have angelic mediators. And, and by the way, it, it, it's with, I'm somewhat sympathetic to it because they want to have such a high view of God, which is commendable, such a high view of God that, that you cannot actually talk to Him, maybe you have to go through a different kind of mediator. Uh, not only that, you can't say God's name. 
Again, you can kind of sympathize with it. God is so holy and awesome and extraordinary, we're not even going to say Yahweh. It's unspeakable. And not only that, we even know that they, they took certain statements in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Sometimes in writing you'll read the LXX. And in certain places where God is described in human terms, uh, so that we can understand what he's like better, they actually change them, lest we think God isn't anything like a human being. And again, somewhat commendable. Let's preserve the majesty and the grandeur in theology, we say, the transcendence of God, because he's transcendent. And yet, what we need to do is not make things up. What we need to do is actually see Jesus for who He is. If you would just have the right view of Jesus, you could see He's the mediator. He's the one who makes God known. If you would just see Him for who He is, you don't need to try and make up these other ways. He's where the transcendent one is revealed in the imminent one, the close one, because He becomes one of us so that we can know this transcendent God. We're just missing it. We're missing out. What's going on here in verse 69? When he says, Son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's, he's saying things that are true of the divine Messiah. He's saying things he's talked about already in Luke chapter 20, where he references Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is just the super important Old Testament psalm that comes up again and again, like in the book of Hebrews. When you connect the dots between who Jesus is as the fulfillment of the promise made to David and those who would come in the line of David, it's Psalm 110. Well, this, is, this is Psalm 110-esque. He's claiming to be Messiah. A great statement from someone else I'll read here. Jesus replies in terms of Psalm 110. And here answers the dilemma posed in his question about Messiahship. Where he made the point, Jesus did in chapter 20, that it is more important to see Messiah as David's Lord than as his son. Just a quick refresher to not get too hung up on it, but a quick refresher. Even in David's Psalm, Psalm 110, he speaks about one who is greater than him. That's the most important thing. And we see it happening here. Jesus is the one who's arrested, but make no mistake about it, He's the one who's in charge. So then it says in verse 70, So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And He said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from His own lips. One more time. If Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, they should be against him. He's, he's grossly profaning the name of God by saying he could sit at his right hand. But if Jesus is who he's claimed to be and who he's demonstrated himself to be, not in fantasy land, not in Narnia, but in the Middle East, in time and space, in history, 
then we're on to something here. And he's not grossly profaning the name of God. I like the way one person put it. The very remarks that the Jews think lower God's stature, in fact, show how exalted Jesus is. And someone else said, when, G- when the Father raises the Son from the dead, he, it's as if he's pulling up a chair for his Son, saying, sit at my right hand. Your work is done. It's all happening. Okay, now let's move on to chapter 23. 23 verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. So you see what's going on. You've got the Jews finding him guilty and they want to have him dead, but they don't want to do it. So they're going to get Rome involved. Remember, they're dominated by the Romans. They're controlled and governed by the Romans. And so they're going to have him, uh, them carry out the capital punishment for a capital crime kind of thing. And they want to have Rome do this. So they get Rome involved. Pilate is the one that they go to. Pilate's the major Roman administrator of the region. He's in charge of finances, among other things. He's in charge of law and order. So they take him to Pilate. He was so in charge, Pilate was the one who appointed the high priest. He appointed Caiaphas the high priest uh, ten times, so ten years in a row. He's got a lot of power, he's got a lot of authority. So they're going to take him to Pilate. Just as a little interesting historical note, uh, for a long time, um, Bible haters um, said, we know that the New Testament isn't true and it's not historical because there's no such thing as a historical person named Pontius Pilate found to not even that long ago archaeologically be uh, a lie uh, because there is archaeological evidence for Pontius Pilate. So uh, again, just to remind you, now even those who use that as their attack against the Bible can't use it anymore. And uh, I like to say archaeology always catches up with the Bible eventually. Um, It's important that we're talking about history. Because, by the way, you and I are living in history. We need a a historical Savior. One who really became one of us. So he could really represent us before his Father. And so, in going to Pilate, it's significant. The Jews need Rome to carry out the execution. Okay, back on track. Verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying... We found this man, derogatory more than likely. They're not even naming him, even though they want this to be an official trial. We found this man misleading our nation, sometimes translated perverting our nation. And by the way, it's the same word that's used in the original text that Jesus used back in chapter 9, I think it is, where he's saying, you wicked and perverse generation. You're unbelieving. You're you're perverted. You're twisted. You're misled and misleading. And now they're saying about Jesus, he's perverting the nation. It's him. It's not us. And forbidding, it says in verse 2, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. That's a lie. As early as, or as recent as chapter 20, verse 25, he says, give to Caesar what? What is Caesar's? More than likely, they're doing this because Pilate's in charge of the money. So if they can somehow get Pilate thinking, you know what, this guy's trying to, you know, to, to, to mess with the cash, he'll, he'll, he'll be interested. It's actually not where Pilate bites. So let's keep going. And saying that he himself is Christ, is Messiah, a king. So we've got a couple of lies mixed with truth. 
which is exactly what we do as sinners. We add truth and lies and put the spin on it, and that's what's happening. Verse 3 says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? So Pilate actually brings up the, the, the last accusation. That's what he's most concerned about. Are you the king of the Jews? And, and he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. I find him to be a good citizen. Right? I find no guilt in him. And Pilate's saying way more than he even knows he's saying. How about that? I find no guilt in this man. Yeah, we, we know that means something far beyond what he even understood. Not guilty. I mean, our minds go to all other places. The just, right? The righteous for the unrighteous. And yeah, he's not guilty on a lot of other levels. Verse 5 says, But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, all, all the land of the Jews, is what, what Judea is, all the land of the Jews. If, if Pilate's not biting at that, let, let's say, you know what, it's a, it's a huge problem. So let's see if that'll work. From Galilee even to this place. It would be like us saying, he, he's a threat to national security. He's a terrorist. What kind of good governor wouldn't do something about him? Verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. We're going to learn, and we know even from extra-biblical sources, that Pilate and Herod weren't, you know, BFF. I can't even say it. BFFs. There was conflict between the two of them for various reasons. We don't need to get into it. Herod, Herod's part Jew and part Gentile. Okay, so Rome likes to use Herod because he's sort of one of the Jews and they'll rule the Jews through him, okay? But there's conflict between Pilate and Herod. So why does he do it here? We don't know. It does result in them becoming better friends or becoming friends. Maybe it's a gesture, a gesture of respect. Maybe a little bridge building because it's better for politics. Maybe it's because he doesn't want to be involved in it anymore. No doubt that would be part of it. Get him out of my hair. Oh, I can get out of this one. Those unruly Jews that are asking me this and requiring me of this and, and, and even, even unbelievers have a conscience. So he says, well, let's send him there. Then verse 8 says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Verse 9. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. So he not only doesn't get a sign, you know, he gets the silent treatment. You know, agitating. Not the expected response. People who know more about literature than I do, especially uh, ancient literature, 
say this does not fit the literary expectation of the text. In other words, even in the way it's constructed grammatically as literature, it, it just seems to come to, a, to, to this, you know, moment of crickets. You expect it to go here, you expect it to either be a sign or some kind of response, and, and Jesus doesn't, doesn't give it. Isaiah 53, verse 7 reads, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for, this gen- and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. The classic substitutionary atonement passage. seems to be what's going on here. I'll never forget um, hearing a man, a Jewish man speak who, who had become a Christian um, who had a significant ministry to his friends who were Jewish. Uh, and he said that was one of his favorite exercises is to read Isaiah 53 and say, now, I'm not going to show you, but you tell me from where I'm reading. And, and he said, on one occasion at least, as I recall it, the man said, I don't know, but it's obviously from one of your Gospels. No, it's from your prophet, Isaiah. Drama of redemption unfolding according to plan. Because of God's love for us. Once again, we might be saying to ourselves, because we want everything to serve some kind of practical purpose, you know, what's the usability What's the practical purpose for me today, Pastor? The practical purpose is for you to see that Jesus is a trustworthy Savior and what happened to Him was not martyrdom. Something is unfolding here because God doesn't hold our sins against us in Christ. That's the cash value. And there's no greater value than that. Then verse 10 says, The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Just mocking, making fun of, beating. This awful thing going on. They're clueless. Later on, the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. doesn't mean they weren't culpable. It doesn't mean they weren't responsible, but they were clueless. Verse 12 says, And Herod and Pilate became friends. Isn't that nice? Right? Truth unites and truth divides, and lies unite and lies divide. They became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. 13 says, Pilate then called together the chief priests. I'm going to slow it down a little bit here just to make sure we understand who we're talking about here so you can see the grossness of it. So uh, he called together the chief priests. Those would be the Jewish religious leaders. 
and the rulers, so now we've got the Jewish social leaders who support the religious leaders. And then here you go. This is, this is meant to be a little unsettling and shocking, if not a lot. And the people. How about that? Jesus has been pretty popular. He's been really popular. I mean, you, you want to get a meal? Go find Jesus. You want, to, you, want, you want to get healthy? You want to at least see other people do this? I mean, you want to go hear someone teach like no one teaches? He's got a huge following from the people, the Jewish people. And here, the very same ones, no mistake, the very same ones who, who liked Jesus, they were drawn to Jesus, are now turning against Jesus. I mean, if we were sitting down and reading the whole gospel account in one sitting, we'd go, whoa, what? Yeah, they're all against him, meaning all, all different kinds of people. I mean, maybe we should at least acknowledge, you know, you, you say, did the Jews kill Jesus? Yes. Did the Romans kill Jesus? Yes. Did the people kill Jesus? Yes. Wasn't one race wasn't one socioeconomic group. It wasn't one religious group. It wasn't... No. Quite sickly and grossly, we have a sampling from those who are part of the right religion, those who are part of the people who say they like Jesus. They would have had fish symbols on their donkeys. Probably not. And we're meant to see here that they're, that they're all against him. So then it says, all right, uh, we're in ver verse 14, right? Okay. And said to them, you brought this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Jesus is officially innocent. Okay, we can make an example of him. He's taken enough of our time. Maybe he needs the slap on the wrist so as to not create any more... Or problems for us, but let's at least see that, again, from the mouth, not of babes, <laughs> but from the mouth of unbelieving officials, they say, he, he, he's, he's not worthy of death. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. Okay, verse 18, but they all cried out together, away with this man! And release to us Barabbas. I'm not really big on people's names and what they mean. Sometimes there's a lot of meaning in a name. Um, sometimes, you know, they're named Joe because people like the name Joe. I mean, you know, I'm always suspect when you go to the store, especially like the Christian trinket store, I mean Christian bookstore, um, and you go and, you know, and it says, you know, Patrick one who is honorable and valiant and trustworthy and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, who made that up? You know? I'm like, one who's dishonest and a rebel and a liar. You know? I mean, I mean 
who's going to say that? It doesn't sell. Um, no 40% markup. I mean, or what, 60, whatever. So I don't really like those too much, to be honest. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I do remember when we were naming uh, our son Josiah. Molly and I were fighting in the hospital because that's what sinners do. Um, you know, what's it going to be? I wanted him to be Ivan because I thought that was cool. And praise God, I have a good wife who's a good helper. Um, and, you know, she wanted it to be, I, I don't know what, you know, something wonderful, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> and so then eventually, you know, we, they, we're, it's like time to check out of the hospital and you have to have the name. You know, what, what is it going to be? And so she said, okay, how about Josiah? And I, thought, I said, that, that, that sounds good. And I, I, Josiah is a good king and that, that would be good. And I said, but, you know, let me just look up some passages first just to be safe. <laughs> you know, I mean, can you imagine? It's sort of like the person who kind of knows something about the Bible, but not really. And, you know, I think Judas is a biblical name, isn't it? <laughs> You're like, hello. <laughs> just wanted to make sure. Um, he was a good king. Uh, who was an eight-year-old king, and right now Josiah's eight, and he thinks that's pretty cool. But anyway, he was a good king because he tore down the high places, the idolatrous places, and he rediscovered the Bible because they had hidden the Bible for so long they'd forgotten what it said. So anyway, why are we talking about this? Names. I did find it interesting that the name Barabbas means son of the father. Now, is it intentional? I'm not going to make a mountain out of a molehill. Crucify the Son and give us the Son of the Father. Give us the one who actually would be labeled today a terrorist. Treat the Son like he's a terrorist and release to us as if he's innocent, even though he's proven guilty, the Son of the Father. The imposter, if you will. It's just sick and wrong on every level. But it does help us to understand a little bit about substitutionary atonement, doesn't it? The just, the law keeper, Jesus, for the unjust. Well, guess what? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a double reality. Verse 19, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, overthrowing the government attempts kind of stuff, started in the city and for murder. 20 says, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt. I underlined that, no guilt. He's the guiltless one, the Isaiah 53 one. No guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Luke 9.44 said, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Same verbiage we have here 
quoting Pilate. So we do have a great picture of substitution. Just for the unjust. The unjust released because of the just. And as Christians, that's our hope. It's our great hope that Jesus would give himself up for us so that we might go free even though we're the spiritual terrorists. And by the way, you are one. Because whenever we don't love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're saying, you're not God. I don't respect you for who you are. You might say you're God, but I say you're not. I say I'm in charge. I'm in charge here, so I'll treat you however I want to treat you. I make the rules. Well, that's insurrection. And if there really is only one God, then he has every right to act like God and and call his creatures to acknowledge him for who he really is. And we haven't. And so we see the drama being for us. A redemptive plan, purposed before the ages. Terrible things being carried out by human hands, human sinfulness, for a greater cause and greater purpose, the ultimate cause and ultimate purpose, reconciliation. Let me end by reading, well, what Peter will go on to say in the book of Acts, connecting the dots. Remember, Luke is volume one, and Acts, written by Dr. Luke, is volume two. Putting it all together, then we'll close in prayer. He says, Who through the mouth of your father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? He's describing our historic event. Verse 26 says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. For truly, how about this? Listen to this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. God's plan, Messiah, Savior, Redeemer, God's purposed plan, people are against him, but it's according to plan, it's Herod and Pilate. Be impressed with Jesus. Be impressed with God's love for you in Christ if you're trusting in Him. You can't make this stuff up. Everyone's condemned. Boy, if I were starting a religion, I would never, ever, ever make that conclusion. I would at least say that I'm worthy. I would at least say I'm inherently good. A unique religion that says no one is capable no one is worthy. Everyone is guilty. We're seeing it in our passage. We've got the Jew, Jewish leaders, the best of the best, the Roman leaders, and then eventually even the people who like Jesus are against Jesus. All guilty. Coming to all the wrong conclusions. <laughs> the only hope is that someone would do something for us that we don't deserve. Well, that's how the gospel works that God would do something for us. It's the opposite of what we deserve. And it could only come to you according to sovereign grace. 
God's free choice to save according to His amazing grace. Father, thank You for today and thank You for opportunities to to boast in Christ and to not only boast in Christ by proclaiming His greatness and superiority, but also to have opportunity to to find ourselves uh, even knowing better why why we rest in Christ. Why we can do what the Bible says, and that's cease to cease striving and to know that He is God. May we find ourselves seeing Jesus for who He is and resting in Him, finding hope in Him, and then living in light of what He's done for us, even as we read earlier in First Peter, wanting to do what's right because Jesus has purchased us in our freedom, wanting to honor Him, wanting to draw attention to him and not to ourselves, even getting along with one another because we've been forgiven so much we can forgive other people. As we go, help us to remember the centrality and focus of the entire universe as is designed by you being your son and how you've done this for us so that we might have meaning in life as well. In Jesus' name, amen.